Young adults, how are we doing tonight? Are we good? Hey, does anybody have faith in the room? Five people have faith in the room. Hey, while you're taking your seat, turn to your neighbor, give him a hug, a high five. I know you mingled already. Let's break the little personal bubble. Let somebody know you prayed you would sit beside them. And God answer your prayer. You're batting one for one today. Hey, I know Zach asked earlier, but is this anybody's first time here, young adults? I'd just like to see hands. Awesome. What's up, man? I want to say welcome. We hope that this feels like home for you. Um, you don't have to believe what we believe to belong here, but we will unashamedly preach the name of Jesus because in my experience, and for, for most of us in this room, he's the only person that's ever been effective in changing not just our circumstance, but our soul, our heart. And so we're going to preach Jesus. And if you don't believe in God, we're going to pray that you experience God tonight. And uh, maybe you've heard of Jesus and you're not sure about him. We just pray that you get a revelation tonight of who Jesus really is. And so coming off the heels of Red Conference, again, how many people here at Red Conference? Look at somebody that doesn't have their hand raised and just shake their head, shake your head. You know, like your grandma used to do when you got in trouble. If you weren't at Red Conference, I mean this, I'm not trying to sell tickets for a year out. You missed out. We had some incredible speakers, but more than that, just the presence of God showed up in a new way. And so as I was getting ready for this message, I was kind of like, what do I do sort of on the heels of Red Conference? Because I believe that Red Conference wasn't, uh, I believe that Friday didn't end Red Conference. I believe that it was a starting point, a starting line for what God wants to do in young adults, in Denver, and in our lives personally. And so as I was getting ready for my message tonight, I was praying like, God, what do you want to talk about? What do you want me to talk about on the heels of Red Conference to sort of carry this momentum forward? And over the past few months in my life, for whatever reason, God has just been speaking to me on this theme of revival. Now, I know if you grew up in church or if anybody Pentecostal grew up Pentecostal, literally one of us, that is awesome. Me and you, just me and you, we, we get this. But revival could sometimes have this weird sort of context or, or connotation with it. But I want to read the definition of revival. It's simply this. It's an increased spiritual interest and awareness not only within our church, but within our city and within our culture that leads people into a relationship with Jesus. And over the past three, four months, maybe, I've just been praying like, God, what would it look like for revival to break out in our city, to break out in my life personally, to break out in young adults in Red Rocks Church? And he spoke something very distinctly to me as I'm praying for this sort of move outwardly of God. He said this, before revival, before there can be revival on the outside, there needs to be a revelation on the inside. Before revival can break out in our city and in our lives on the outside, there needs to be a revelation on the inside. And so I believe that if we're going to see God move in our city and as a church, I believe we need to have a revelation of who Jesus is and then a revelation of what that means for us as his church and as his people. 
And so if you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to read the Bible with the keys on. Doesn't it just make it feel more powerful? Makes me sound so much better than I already am. Like, watch, when the keys go off, I just sound awkward and weird. My voice goes up like, I don't know, four or five, like, notches. I, I start speaking weird. Anyway, focus. Okay. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to jump in in verse 13. And this is what it says. When Jesus arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, I've been there. It's weird. They used to sacrifice goats and weird stuff there. He asked his disciples, what are people saying about who the Son of Man, uh, who the Son of Man is? Isn't that our culture today? What do people say about me? And they replied, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus pressed them. And he said, what about you? Who do you say I am? I believe that's one of the most important questions that defines humanity, that defines like our, us as people who Jesus is to us. He says, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, the one that always speaks first, he says this. He says, you're Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus came back at him and said, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or listening to some teacher or listening to some preacher on a stage. He says, my father in heaven, God himself actually let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. You're Peter. You're a rock. And this is the rock on which I will put my church together, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. That's good. Can somebody give Jesus a shout and amen? The title of my message tonight is this, the prerequisites for revival. If you're taking notes, write that down, the prerequisites for revival. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, we come before you tonight, and God, I'm painfully aware that I am at my best day an average speaker. But God, when your Holy Spirit comes into a room, you can do things that I hadn't planned on. You can do things that aren't in my notes. Jesus, you show up in a room and things change. And God, I believe you want to move in our city. I believe you want to move in our lives. I believe you want to move in our relationships and our friendships. And so God, tonight we are a blank canvas. We are an open slate. And God, we just ask for you to do what only you can do, which is lift the head of the weary, heal the heart of the broken. Would you come to proclaim the year of your favor, the year of peace in this room? And Jesus, we look to you as the only name that is strong enough to save. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So me and this one other girl in this room grew up Pentecostal. <laughs> and as a kid, I was like a Pentecostal church kid. And what that means is, like, I didn't go to church service on Easter and Christmas. I didn't even go to church service on Sundays. I went to church Sunday morning. I went to church Sunday night. I went to church Wednesday night. I went to church Thursday if there was prayer night. Like, I was a church kid through and through. And now most of the time I was, like, drawing or coloring and not paying attention, but I was a church kid. But once a year, for whatever reason, once a year, 
there would be a seven-day period, a little, a literal week set aside for what my church would like to call like a revival week. Revival week at my church. And it would be seven days straight of church. Seven days. And what we would normally do is we would fly in a guest speaker, kind of like Red Conference, but for whatever reason in my church, they'd be like a multi-talented speaker. And so what I mean by that is they not only would speak, they would sing, and somehow they would play an instrument, and they could incorporate that into everything that they do. And it was like a revival service. And this guy, this poor dude, like, let me tell you, after Thursday nights from preparing a message, I am like brain dead Friday. Like, you will find me sitting on my couch watching March Madness, like not thinking at all. Go Duke. And, um, oh, please don't hate. Zion Williams already better than LeBron. Like, let's just, uh, that one's for Cam Cathcart. Love you, Cam. Don't move. Um, but this guy literally would come and he would preach seven different messages, like a new one each night. I do not know how he did it. Most of the time he'd like, I don't know, play his instrument or something like distract from the fact that he wasn't preaching. But, and what would happen, these weren't like normal young adult services or Red Rocks church services. Like these were three to four hour long charismatic church services. And so he would get up there and start to preach and then the band would start to flow behind him and then like somebody would just come sprinting down like the middle aisle and then like people would be doing like the little Jericho laps like around the church. There'd be people kind of in the back with like all these different flags like of different nations and they would like be dancing and praying and the, and the thought was that God would like move kind of like within like those nations and there's this piece, and I'm so sorry. I literally have this. I bought one. I had the opportunity to go to Israel in the fall. It was amazing. And um, the place where the tabernacle was built, I was there, and they were selling these things. If anybody knows this, please raise your hand. I just want to see. They were selling this thing called a shofar. Anybody? A shofar? Yes. You're my people. And it's this, it's this giant ram's horn that the Israelites would blow to either signify they were marching into battle or that they would, that they've just experienced a victory, like on the battlefield. And what would happen, for whatever reason, like just my pastor or whoever would get this itch, and this guy would like walk out on stage, and I'm not talking about like a little like, like it wasn't like something like that. Like this was like a Lord of the Rings, like, like ready to go to work, like, Twin Towers sort of like ram's horn thing. And like everybody, like I remember as a kid, I'd just be sitting there like looking and be like, it's about to go down. Like I don't even, like as a kid, you're like, I don't even know what this signifies, but people lose their mind like when this happens. And my pastor would get up and he would blow this giant ram's horn and people would just go nuts during revival week. And no lie, there was even a, there was even this one time, this only happened once, but I remember it it, it impressed me slash scarred me, whatever. We had this giant cross that sort of sat at the back of our church. And somebody in our church is just like, you know what we need to do? We need to carry that thing across the city. And so like right across the street from our church, there's this giant park. Imagine like a ghetto version of Wash Park. And it was kind of like, but it was where like everybody would go and like hang out. And like 50 people, and because I'm like a church kid, like I just got dragged there, and I'm like, no, but like we take this giant cross and are like marching. Somebody like slings it over their shoulder, and it's not like, I mean, it's like huge. Like 
three or four people need to like help prop it up and you're lucky to get like four steps in before you like tap out like and they're like carrying it around this park like and I'm just like walking so far behind like if any of my friends see me right now like no you know like but that was revival week growing up and I think for a lot of us or maybe just me and her like for a lot of us like this word revival can, can have this like weird sort of connotation. Like it can seem like interesting or like just different or uncomfortable. Or maybe if you never grew up in church or had a different church background, like you're not even very familiar with what the word revival is or, or means or, or what it can potentially be like within a church. But I honestly believe from the bottom of my heart these people, all, all this was, the, the, the horn, the flags, the march, I think it came from a beautiful place in their heart where they were desperate and they were just saying, God, we want to see you move in a new way in our city. We want to see you move in a fresh way. We want you to do things that you've never done before. We want to reach people we've never reached before. So God, whatever it takes, literally, ram's horn, Jericho March, whatever, we are willing to do whatever to see you move. And, and I think sometimes revival gets this weird sort of rap, but here's the thing. It's real. You can kind of track throughout history these points and times for, for whatever reason, God just decides to pour out his Holy Spirit in a new and in a fresh way. And people that might have never considered God are sort of awake to this spirituality and they're open and interested in talking or at least hearing about Jesus. And not only do I believe that revival is real, but as I've been praying and sensing and watching like the news or whatever, it's, it's just, I'm just like, God, I feel like our world, I feel like our city is ripe for you. I feel like it's time for a move of God in Denver. I feel like it's time for a move of God like we've never seen before in our city. And I feel like before we can experience revival, before we can experience this like spiritual awakening that leads people to a relationship with Jesus, the thing that we need first and foremost, before there comes revival on the outside, we need a revelation of who Jesus is on the inside. We need a revelation of who Jesus is on the inside. And I know that might sound simple, but I promise you that is profound. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What does culture, what are the people talking about? Like at this time, Jesus was walking around. He was preaching these sermons. He was performing these miracles. And Jesus was kind of like a known person, like in a good way to all the poor and hurting and broken people because Jesus loved them and reached out to them. And then almost in a bad way with all the religious people because they were like, this guy's kind of taking my shine. Like, why is everybody following him? Jesus was known by culture. In this moment, and he asked his disciples, who is culture saying that I am? What is culture trying to define me as? And his disciples, if they were in our day and age, if Jesus asked that question, we would say, oh, Jesus, they think you're a great person. Jesus, they think you're a really good guy. You do like good things, you know, like thumbs up, Jesus. Like, 
You do good things, Jesus. Jesus, they think you're a spiritual teacher that has some great points. And Jesus, they think if people listen to you, they'll probably become better people. But then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, that's what culture, that's the narrative that our culture is putting out about me. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I, Jesus, am? And Peter, because he has this revelation from God about who Jesus is, he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You are the King who has been prophesied of old to come. See, all throughout the Old Testament, Israel was, was led by God. It's what we call a theocracy, and God was Theo. Like, he was the guy in charge of leading Israel. But as they were conquering other nations and moving towards this promised land, they said, all these other nations have a king. And God's like, I'm your king. And they're like, no, we want another king. And he's like, whatever, you guys are frustrating. And so that's where we get, that's where we get David. That's where we get Solomon, these kings of Israel. And... and Peter, when he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, like that word is literally translated like prophetic king to come. And, and when Peter sees Jesus and says, you are the Messiah, Peter gets the title right, but he gets the context totally wrong. See, in Peter's mind, Jesus was an Israeli revolutionary come to overthrow the Roman Empire and sit on the throne of Israel and rule the nation of Israel as a king. Peter was looking for a revolutionary that would be a king. What he got in Jesus was a gracious, humble servant who would revolutionize the world. Not by overthrowing some system the way that we think, but by giving his life and then not being held down, but be being raised again on the third day to revolutionize everything we know about God. And yes, Jesus is a king, but he's not the king of Israel. He's the king of the new Israel, a.k.a. the universe. Everything under this world, everything that we know, think and taste and touch and things we can't even see. Jesus is king of all that. Peter was looking for the king of a nation. And what he got was the king of the universe. Who do people say I am? Listen, you don't have to be super tuned in to the news or whatever to know that our culture has a very strong narrative on who Jesus is and, and what our Christian faith is about. Culture loves to write the narrative of our faith for us, it, that, that Jesus is a good guy, that he's a good teacher, that he's a friendly dude that like took care of like elderly people or whatever. And I think sometimes we're so inundated with what the narrative that culture is sort of throwing out at us about who Jesus is, who they think he is. Because listen, culture doesn't like King Jesus. They like safe Jesus. They like blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, which there's, there's no blonde-haired, blue-eyed people in Israel except for me. I stuck out like a sore thumb. They like gentle Jesus, like burns if he gets in the sun, pale Jesus. Like they want Jesus to be soft. They want him to be meek. They want him to be manageable. And, and I think subconsciously, Without meaning to. We're just so inundated with this message. And I think our hearts are sensitive in trying to reach people around us that we've sort of accepted this false narrative about who Jesus is. Is Jesus a good teacher? Absolutely. 
Is Jesus a kind person? Yes, the Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Did Jesus have long curly hair? I don't know. Like, did Jesus, was he around lambs? I'm sure he was. But more than any other title, Jesus is a king. And he is not just a king. Jesus is the king. He is the king of kings. The Bible says he is the Lord of lords. There is no other king past tense present tense he is the king of Gen- of genesis in the beginning king jesus was forming the world in the like throughout exodus king jesus was leading israel out of slavery in matthew king jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven and in revelation king jesus rules eternally for the rest of life but our culture hates this idea of a king. They hate the idea of King Jesus. And I think that's why we hesitate sometimes to sort of use this royal verbiage, to like use this kingly verbiage because our culture hates the idea of a king. And I think because they hate this so much, we as Christians and we as the church have like slowly and steadily started to have this this image of King Jesus sort of eroded from our mind. They hate this idea of King Jesus because in our culture, the most false narrative that is being pushed right now is the greatest freedom you could ever experience is having no one ever telling you what to do. The greatest sort of like false narrative, what we think is like the greatest freedom ever is to have nobody over you, to have nobody telling you what to do. We say that peace in our culture is found in the ability to call your own shots and that purpose is found when you get the opportunity to play by your own rules and we as christians intentionally or unintentionally have bought in to this narrative that instead of jesus being the king that he is jesus has slowly turned into our sidekick and we conduct our relationships through our own set of rules we we conduct our sexuality and and our sex life through our own lens and our own set of rules we conduct our finances or even our entire life through our own set of rules and if whatever king jesus says fits into that picture that's awesome but it's not necessary because in our minds we've we've humbled Jesus to this person that's just this cool little great teacher that throws out suggestions on better living every once in a while and I just want to ask like how is that working how well is that working for anybody anybody thriving with Jesus as their sidekick I kind of just had this like revelation in my own life where I'll just be honest, like my life was good, like my marriage was good, like everything was good. But I, I remember just like sitting, reading my Bible and like I was, I was driving to the gym and I was praying and I was just like, God, like where's the power that I'm supposed to be experiencing as a Christian? God, like where is your power? Like, where is the power, the peace, like the thriving? Where is the abundant life that when I open my Bible and I see the disciples like going into cities and things changing, like where is that in my life? And I think if we're being honest, most of us as Christians in this room, we live our day-to-day lives and we're not experiencing the power that we see in the Bible. 
I think on our best day, if we are being totally honest with sidekick Jesus, this is what our life sort of looks like and feels like. This is our life with Jesus as our sidekick. This is my dog, Mac, experiencing his first swimming lesson. And our trainer, Sarah, said, hey, your first lesson with Mac swimming is not going to be swimming the way that you picture it. Mac is going to be surviving. Like the way that dogs learn to swim is they survive. And Aaron and I, like two of the most whitest people you could ever like imagine, like have our cell phones with our golden retriever and we're like, look at our little boy. Like he's, he's swimming and like really he's drowning. You saw the little leash like on his neck. Literally, the lady was like, I know this is going to look super cruel, but whenever he goes to the side of the pool, I've got to pull him back into the middle and eventually his fear will like go away and he'll start to swim. We never experienced it that day. (laughs) But as I was like watching my poor dog swim, survive, like I like I was just like, how often do I feel like that? Like, for how often do I feel like Mac did a good job keeping his head above water, but everything else is just sort of like freaking out underneath. And I think as Christians, we understand that there is a life of thriving. There is a life of purpose. There is a life of power. There is a life of intentionality available to us. But most of us spend our entire life just surviving and not thriving in the life that God has called us to. Listen, if you want to experience life more abundant, if we want to experience a revival, a move of God in our city, Jesus, he is an awful sidekick. It is the only thing Jesus is bad at. But let me tell you, Jesus is an amazing king. He is the best king. Jesus thrives as a king. And I think so many of us, we have this mentality where we're like, where is the power? Where is the power that I see in the Bible? Where is the power that I see when I open the book and I read about these people doing things and changing lives? Like, listen, there is not power in a concept of Jesus. There is not power in the idea of Jesus, but there is power in the kingship of Jesus Christ. And if we want to see a revival, if we want to see God move in our city, we need a revelation in our hearts and in our minds and in our spirit of who Jesus really is. Who am I to you? I think is what Jesus is asking us. Is Jesus your backup plan? For when life kind of gets out of control and and the way that you sort of had things stacked up isn't working, is Jesus your plan B that you go to when, when things seem out of control? Is Jesus your sidekick that you check in with every once in a while? Or maybe roll the dice and pray that things work out your way? Or is Jesus the king of your life? Because if we want to see revival, we have to understand that Jesus is a king. He's king, and he's the best king. He's the most gracious of leaders. The Bible says his mercy endures forever. It says it's his kindness 
that leads us to repentance. It says that he is a good, good shepherd. It says that he forgives your sins and throws them as far as the east is from the west. It says that he remembers your transgressions no more. Jesus is a king, and he is the king that we want to follow. He's the king that we want our lives to be under. He is a terrible sidekick, but Jesus is an incredible and amazing king. If we want to see revival move in our city and in our lives, we have to answer the question. We know what culture says. We hear the narratives. We see the shows. We, we hear the, the radio interviews. We know what culture says Jesus is. But who is Jesus to you? And then I love this. When we get a revelation of who Jesus is, this is bonus. This isn't even in my notes. When we get a revelation of who Jesus is, I love that he looks at Peter and he says, now I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. You can't really know who God's made you to be if you're in control of your life. I feel like I'm talking to somebody tonight. You have tried so hard to hold on and white knuckle all these parts of your life that seem to just be falling apart. And you think that God's left you. You think that God's abandoned you. But what God is doing right now is he's trying to let you see that with you holding so tightly to control your life by yourself, you're missing out on the power of God. Let go. Let go and let God be the king of your life because when Jesus is king and you get that revelation, God said, you didn't learn that from a preacher. Listen, you can't learn that from me. You can't learn about Jesus as king. You can't have that revelation well up inside of you from me. That's got to be the Holy Spirit and you like one-on-one -on -one praying to Jesus, like living for Jesus, like recognizing your brokenness before Jesus and then letting the Holy Spirit speak that to you. Jesus says, you didn't get that from a teacher. You got that from my Father who revealed a secret of heaven to you. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, Peter. You find yourself when you, when you get this revelation of who Jesus is. And he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And Jesus is the King. If we want to see revival on the outside, we need a revelation of who Jesus is on the inside. But here's the catch. There's always a catch, right? Here's the catch. It just can't be easy. It's got to be a catch. Here's the catch. With revelation comes responsibility. With Revelation comes responsibility. There's so many Christians that I meet that want to see God move. They want to see the Holy Spirit sweep through their city. They want to see their friends saved. They want to see their family saved. They want to see God do something on their campus or God do something in their home. They want revival and they might even have this revelation of who Jesus is. But with that revelation comes a responsibility to every single believer in the church to do something about it. We will never see revival if we're content just, just sitting around and, and, and trying to have these revelations about God. No, there's a responsibility that comes with the revelation of who Jesus is. And band, you guys can start to make your way on up. Matthew chapter 16 Peter gets this revelation of who Jesus is. He gets this revelation and Jesus responds, yes, Peter, you got it. You nailed it. And, and you didn't get that from other people. You didn't figure that out. That wasn't just something you thought of. God, the Father in heaven, revealed that to you. You have a revelation of who I really 
am. And then he says this, go build my church. With revelation comes responsibility. And that responsibility as a Christian is this, go and build God's church. If you are a Christian in here, it doesn't matter what your occupation is. It doesn't matter what your IQ level is. It doesn't matter what your gifts and your talents are. You are the, the call on your life is to build God's church. And how do we build God's church? If one person claps, everybody's got to clap. It's a rule. It's a house rule. All right, we'll work on it next time. Thanks. How do we build God's church? We build his church by building up people. Oh, we build the church so it's not about being on stage with a microphone in your hand. Building God's church is not about playing an instrument or singing or having people know your name. Oh, if we want to build God's church, we've got to build people, broken, lost, hurting people. But, but people are complicated, right? People are messy. People don't fit into your box. People don't fit into your timeline. There's not a, a four-week, five-week, ten-week program to where your friend who's strung out on heroin in five weeks should now be set free. What normally it looks like, like is freedom, relapse, freedom, relapse, freedom. I don't think I can do this anymore. No, you can do it because God that is inside of you is stronger than anything you'll face on the outside of you. See, we love the revelation. But I think a lot of us don't like the responsibility. Because the responsibility is to give your very, like every day of your life to building and investing and working with people that might not get it right away. There's no, like, when did we get this timeline of when people should get something or be set free? I don't know about any of you, but I know my story. It, it was years of highs, then years of lows, and years of me thinking that I got it, and then years of me thinking I had no clue about anything. And there was this guy in my college who just did not give up on me. He had no timeline. He had no agenda. He understood that building God's church meant building a broken, lost college student like me. With that revelation of Jesus comes responsibility. And let me tell you something, young adults. This is something that I'm learning. My wife is learning. We as a family are learning. Mac might even be learning. I don't know. We talk about it a lot. In God's kingdom, responsibility goes hand in hand with availability. In God's kingdom, responsibility normally goes hand in hand with availability. Are you available? Listen, I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm out almost every night of the week. It is a miracle if my wife and I get to sit at home and watch Friends or Selling Sunset. It's like this new show that she's on right now. Like, don't judge me, okay? We're busy. We're tired. But building God's church, building broken people walks hand in hand with being available for them, even when it might not be convenient for you. Matthew 5 says this. It says, you are a city on a hill, your light that cannot be hidden. So let your light shine so that lost and broken, hurting people can see Jesus and glorify him for who he really is. And I think what sort of happens is our default setting 
because people are messy and people are broken and people are hurting as we start to be a light in the darkness. But that's hard and that takes time. And what happens is, y'all see the little light on my phone? We start to become lights. Can we bring up the lights on stage? We start to be lights brighter, brighter. I want to blind people. We start to be lights around other lights because it's easy, right? Like y'all can still see my light, right? It's just not as effective. We start to be lights around other lights because it's easy. People aren't complicated. People know how to play the church game. People know the right things to say. They know how to put on a face. But Jesus says light was made for what? Darkness. Light shines better in darkness. Light was made for darkness. All right. The lights were supposed to go off. It was supposed to be a cool moment. There we go. You could see my light when all the lights were on. But my light is more effective in the dark. We don't have to blind people anymore. We can turn it down. My light on my phone serves a purpose. It's to shine in dark places. And I think so many of us, when we go to build God's church, we want to fight for broken and lost, hurting people. But we realize that it takes time, it takes availability, that it's hard, and it's lights that are supposed to shine into the world. It's easy for us to just creep back into being a light around other lights. But will we just make up in our mind that we will be lights that shine in the darkness so that people can see something different in us. They can see that revelation that we've had about Jesus it's different and it calls broken people home it says they won't see you I think a lot of us have to get over this fact that in this game in this life in this world we were not created to be the stars it says they will see your light and magnify who Jesus because Jesus is the king Jesus is the only one who's worthy of that kind of praise that kind of honor and that kind of glory, could you all stand to your feet as I close? We're about to sing a song in here tonight. We're about to sing a song in here tonight called As You Find Me. As You Find Me, and the lyrics go like this. If you want my heart, I'm not gonna second guess because I need your love more than anything. And I believe there are some people in here tonight. Number one, you don't know King Jesus. You know of Jesus, the person that culture says, Jesus, the person that the talk shows talk about, the good idea, the one of many religious teachers. But no, Jesus is the King of Kings. He is head and shoulders above anything you could ever ask or imagine. And here's the thing. He's a good King. You want him because there's power there. I think a lot of us, some of us in here tonight, maybe we don't know this King Jesus. And as these lyrics in the song say, God, if you want my heart, I'm not going to second guess. If you're in here tonight and you don't know Jesus as King, maybe you know about him, but you don't know who he is. Would you not second guess? Would you lift up your hand? I want to invite you to know the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Don't hesitate. Don't second guess. 
put your hands down on us. I think there's a lot of us in here too that maybe we know Jesus, but he's become our sidekick and not our king. And there's a line in this, in this chorus that we're about to sing that says, hey Jesus, I'm in. I'm yours. Your love won't ever leave me here. And I, I want to ask some people in here tonight, number one, if you want a revelation of who Jesus is, not as a sidekick, not as a backup plan, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords, maybe you just need to say, I've been walking this church thing out for a while, but I'm ready to go all in. Could you lift your hands and say, Jesus, I'm in. I'm yours. We're going to pray here in a minute, but there's one more group of people I want to talk to tonight. I just felt so strongly God put this on my heart. This, this, this chorus says, your love won't leave me here. And I think there's some people in this room tonight. And I think what's happened is something has bad has happened to you or you have done something bad to somebody. And what you think is the lie that you've believed is that Jesus, this king, has just kind of left you to your own devices. And this thing that happened to you, you have now imprisoned yourself with this situation. And you are walking around the biggest victim in the room thinking that God has forsaken you and that God has abandoned you. But like this song says, I want you to believe as we sing that his love will never leave you where you are, but it's calling you to more. It's calling you to freedom. It's calling you to greater. Can we all pray and then we're going to sing this song. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, we believe that tonight you are so much more than anything our culture or anything our society has said about you. Jesus, you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. And God, we believe that tonight you are gonna move. And so tonight, if there is anybody in this room who does not know Jesus in your heart or maybe out loud, could you repeat after me, Jesus, I need your love more than anything. I'm all in. I'm yours. Do with my life what you want to do. As we sing this song, I'm just asking you, would you leave it all on the table? Just empty yourself out tonight. Why hold back? There's no reason to hold back. Lord Jesus, we love you. We believe in you. This night is yours. Do with it what you will. It's in the precious and holy and powerful name of King Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Let's sing.